and welcome to the latest episode of Opinionated Science, the podcast from Technology Networks. It's our first episode of 2021. I'm Rory McKenzie, a science writer for Technology Networks, and today's topic is Revolutionary Genomic Technology Next Generation Sequencing, or NGS for short. Today's podcast is sponsored by Thermo Fisher Scientific. Now, given the topic of today's podcast, it's only fitting that I'm joined by Molly Campbell, TN's genomics editor. How are you, Molly? Hi, Rory. I am very well, thank you. Looking forward to delving into NGS. I was also lucky enough to be joined earlier by Alex Almeida, who is a researcher at the European Bioinformatics Institute. Now, Alex uses NGS technology in his research, which is unravelling the secrets of the human microbiome. We'll hear from Alex later just how NGS has changed biology and made his project possible. But first, Molly, perhaps you could give us an introduction into what NGS is. Yeah, absolutely. So when we're talking about NGS, which is also sometimes referred to as massively parallel sequencing, we're referring to a set of DNA sequencing technologies that are sort of high throughput in nature, so processing a lot of information. And we can subtype NGS into different forms. So we can categorise it as whole genome sequencing, which is sequencing the entire genome of an organism. So that's really the entirety of genes that are expressed in a particular organism. We can then further subdivide that to whole exome sequencing, which sequences exons of the genome, which are genes that code for proteins. And we can also conduct something known as targeted sequencing. And that's kind of delving in a little bit more detail. And we're focusing on specific panels of exons from selected genes. So maybe you have a particular gene of interest that you want to learn more about. And in doing targeted sequencing, you're focusing specifically on that area of the genome, as opposed to, say, the whole exome or the whole genome. Great. Thanks for the introduction, Molly. Now that we've heard a bit about what NGS is, we're going to hear from Alex, who's going to introduce himself and his research. My name is Alex Almeida. I'm a postdoctoral fellow and microbiologist at the European Bioinformatics Institute in Cambridge, UK. So, and my research is specifically focused on the study of the diversity and the composition of the human gut microbiome. Great. Thank you, Alex. Um, Tell us a bit more about your research. What are, in particular are you analyzing about the microbiome and what have your recent findings been? So in my research, essentially, we have been looking at the DNA sequences of the, the microbiome. So for analyzing microbiome uh, data, essentially, there are two main avenues you can take. Either you try to individually grow the bacterial species that are found in your microbiome, and this allows you to then perform experiments and actually validate some of the hypotheses that you may have, or you can use another approach, which I do, which is called metagenomics, to actually look at the DNA sequences of the bacteria without having to grow them in the lab. So in my research, I have used purely these metagenomic methods to look at which species are there and what species are actually found through these DNA sequencing technologies that have not been grown in the lab. So if you're not growing these in a, in a petri dish in a lab, are you just sourcing them from the environment? 
Yeah, so essentially you start out with a stool sample, right? That's the most common way that you analyze gut microbiome data. I mean, the first step is really just extracting all the DNA that is there using typical uh, DNA extraction kits, which use different physical and chemical uh, assays to, to kind of tease out all the DNA that is present in your sample. Then you run that final sample through a, sequence, a sequencer, which is essentially a, a machine that allows you to photocopy your, your DNA to allow you to tell you what is the, the composition, what is the order in which the individual pieces of the DNA, which are called nucleotides, are present in your sample. So yeah, it, essentially without having to, to grow these, sample, the, these bacteria in the lab, we can essentially look at all the diversity that is present there without any inherent biases that could be depending on the experimental method that you use. And what's the kind of turnaround time from someone donating one of these samples to you being able to, to sequence all the, the composition of the bacteria? Well, this is, this is a tricky thing. So usually it really depends on how fast you can provide these samples, how fast the, the labs are able to process the sample from once they are collected. And this is actually very important because there are certain bacteria that do not survive as well when they're exposed to oxygen, right? So we need to be as quickly as possible to process them. Ideally, what you would want to happen is that within an hour, you would have a sample that has been collected from, from an individual and then is processed for extraction and then sequencing. Once you have once you have your DNA, once you have extracted uh, the DNA, this is quite stable. So you can keep it in the freezer for a long period of time. But that initial step of actually collecting uh, the stool sample and processing for extraction is very crucial and needs to be done ideally within a day, but at most if possible within a couple of weeks. Okay, so a bit of, bit of time pressure there. So yeah. in, your, in your investigations, what have you discovered about the human microbiome? Essentially, using these metagenomic approaches, we discovered that about 2,000 bacterial species are found in, uh, in the gut microbiome that have not yet been grown in the lab. So before, we, we knew the, the existence of about 600 or so species that have been cultured from the gut microbiome. But using these metagenomic approaches, we actually detected over three times this number uh, that is present and we find just their DNA. So the, it was quite remarkable, the fact that given that the microbiome is one of the most well-studied environments, that there's still so much out there that is, that is unknown. And what is it about these thousands of species of DNA, that, uh, of bacteria, sorry, that makes them so hard to grow inside a, inside a lab environment? So there are, there are some hypotheses. Obviously, we, we cannot say for certain exactly what's the one reason because it really depends on the different species. Obviously there are 2000 species, so each one will have their own uh, nutritional requirements, each specific conditions that needs to, for them to be able to grow in the lab. But what we found uh, across the species is that oxygen seemed to be a determinant factor in the, um, in, in the species. So a lot of these uncultured species have fewer genes to resist oxygen uh, stress. So that means as we were uh, saying just before, the fact that these species might be exposed to oxygen once the, the sample is collected might really kill them immediately and reduce our chances of being able to grow them in the lab. So this is one common thing. The other thing is that we actually found that they have different types of genes to metabolize sugars. So that means that they, the, the medium, the, the, the culture conditions that we normally use to grow the bacteria that have been characterized probably needs to be quite different 
to be able to retrieve all these novel species. So this is another finding that we can deduce from, from the DNA sequences of these bacteria. Great, thank you, Alex. So with regards to these thousands of species of bacteria, I mean, the microbiome is such a sort of hot topic of research right now, but I see it being, uh, you know, uh, modulating the microbiome is being applied in all these different areas of, of medicine. And some researchers have spoken to have cast a bit of doubt on how valuable it is. And this, this your, your findings make me question, you know, if we only know about this fraction of the, the microbiome, how much is there still left to be discovered before we can begin to use the microbiome in medicine and, and modulate it for medical purposes? Exactly. And this is, this is a, a very important question. And I think there are sort of two waves in microbiome research. The one that is very fundamental, where we're trying to really uh, understand what are the individual species, what are the, 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 the composition of the microbiome, and then another that is very translational focused in trying immediately to use the microbiome to improve human health. And I think there needs to be a balance between both, because we might be jumping the gun in in, in trying too quickly to develop novel therapeutics using something that perhaps we don't fully understand. So I think some of the research yeah, that we have been doing at the EVI really highlights this, that there's so much unknown within the microbiome that we really need to still understand the fundamentals before really uh, thinking about how we're going to change people's microbiome to improve human health. Great. Now, one of the most amazing stats about the, the human microbiome, I find, is that the the number of bacterial cells inside our bodies is, I think it's roughly equal to the number of human cells in our bodies. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. There, there was this common misconception a while ago that it was about 10 times, but the actually revised estimates came to the conclusion that it's about, yeah, one-to-one -one almost. I've had to dial it down a bit, but that's still a pretty remarkable stat. Yeah. Now, what I find incredible is that we know so little about this huge, essentially, organism that's inside us, all these, these bacteria together affecting our health, affecting our bodies. How influential has NGS and, and NGS technologies been in science's discoveries in the microbiome? I mean, it has played a determinant role in microbiome research, for sure. It has completely transformed the field. So if you really... I think, the NG, as you mentioned, NGS, now it's usually referred to as high-throughput sequencing because it's no longer next generation. But uh, essentially, high-throughput sequencing ha I mean, really started to, to gain ground towards 2007, 2008. And if you now look on, um, on the literature and, and the number of microbiome studies that, that came out since then, it was a massive explosion. So beginning of, of 2010, this is really when microbiome research uh, took off. Obviously, microbiology is a very old field since 17th century where the first microscope was, was, was invented. But really microbiome research as we know it today in terms of this large scale uh, research area has only really uh, taken off since the inception of uh, high throughput sequencing. It's really because it now allows us to have a, a much more comprehensive view of the composition diversity of the microbiome. So before we, we didn't really have a, a good understanding of which species were there. We were using techniques that didn't have enough resolution for us to understand what are the individual cells, individual bacteria that are present in our gut microbiomes. But now we have techniques that really allow us to dig down into the fine scale resolution of these communities. Before, as you say, high, through, high throughput sequencing technologies were available, what, what would the arduous tasks have been in trying to pick out the, the bacterial species in the microbiome? How difficult would it have been? 
I mean, we've been, so before uh, NGS, I guess the most typical sequencing technology would be the Sanger sequencing. But Sanger sequencing is a very laborious technique that really only allows you to, to test one gene at a time. And you have to, so you spend all this time and in the end you get out just the analysis of one single gene. So as you can imagine, the, the gut microbiome, the latest estimates that contains around 170 million genes, you can imagine the, the work it would have taken to try to sequence one at a time without these, these new technologies. So it has yeah, completely changed our view. So you've talked about uh, 600 bacterial species that have been sequenced in the lab and your, your own findings have turned up a, another few thousand. Do you think that's just the tip of the iceberg or are we starting to get a, a good view of the, the whole microbiome? So one of the main conclusions of our research is that it seems that we're saturated in terms of the number of species discovered specifically for well-characterized populations in Europe and North America. The problem is that a lot of efforts are being targeted specifically for these two regions. So Africa, South America, and even certain parts of Asia are still severely understudied and that are represented in microbiome research. And what we, we have found from a small number of samples that we actually uh, got from these regions is that there's a lot of diversity there that still remains to be explored. So I imagine as we keep expanding our panel of samples to all these different places in the world, we are going to discover much more diversity than we previously thought. Now, I, I don't think uh, microbiome research is alone in being kind of Western-centric. Obviously, this is a problem with a lot of medical research, but in, in sequencing research, genomics research, is it a limiting factor with regards to the, the cost of the technology, or is it simply just where research centers are based? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a bit of both, right? So I think you need, as, as we were saying in the beginning, I think to have a reliable analysis, you need to have the infrastructure for sequencing and for processing these samples close to where the samples are collected, ideally, right? So this has been a limitation in a lot of these regions where, where there aren't uh, research institutes like EBI or the Sanger Institute that are pushing uh, for, for the sequencing technology. So I think, yeah, there needs to be a bit of initiative to try to develop these, these research infrastructures in these, these populations. But even then, I think there needs to be also more collaboration with these institutes because even if they don't have the capabilities, I think having collaborations and having networks where uh, we're sampling these different places in the world can allow to kind of overcome the, the local, the, the community limitations that are there. Absolutely. So I, I know we hear about the, the cost of a, a human genome having come down massively in, in terms of cost. As, as have we seen the same reductions in sequencing of, of microbiomes? Yeah, it's pretty much the same thing. So Essentially, when we talk about the cost, we're talking about the cost of sequencing individual DNA, right? So regardless of whether that DNA comes from human or, or bacteria, the, the cost will be essentially proportionate to the amount of DNA you're sequencing, right? The, the amount of samples. So everything has come down within the last 10 years and it still keeps going down. I guess the other the trade-off is that there are new technologies coming in for sequencing beyond what we have been using within the last five, 10 years. And these, since they are new technologies, they start out to be become very expensive, but then as, as time goes on and they're optimized and being adopted, then th those costs also go down. Yeah, I guess that's the, that's the reason we maybe need to start moving away from NGS because what we're gonna have next, next generation sequencing, what, exactly. what, what is coming after high throughput sequencing as we currently know it, what are the new technologies? So essentially, 
when we talk about high throughput sequencing, we're talking about a specific type of technology that are usually referred to short read sequencing. So uh, reads are essentially the output, what you get from doing DNA sequencing, right? The, the, the individual sequence fragments. And uh, the problem is that high throughput sequencing historically has been limited by the length of these fragments. So let's say you have, you want to sequence a, a bacterial genome. A bacterial genome is about, let's say two to six million bases, these individual DNA pieces. When, when you run these samples through a short read sequencer, at most you get sequence fragments that are about 300 uh, base pairs. So 300 nucleotides out of these like 6 million um, total uh, bases of the genome. Then you have to kind of piece together all these 300 mm. sequences, sort of like a jigsaw puzzle. And this has been a, a, a dramatic limitation in the field because obviously putting together these very small pieces in this larger puzzle is very error prone and there are lots of mistakes that could happen. So these newer technologies that are now referred to as long read sequencing allow you to get much longer fragments that make this jigsaw puzzle much more easier to, to build. So I think that that's the main uh, kind of innovation that is coming ahead is essentially improving the sequencing technologies to get these longer sequence fragments so they're less error prone and we can more reliably reconstruct uh, a bacterial genome or a human genome or whatever genome you're interested in. I think this is one of the most interesting aspects of, of sequencing research is that uh, maybe to some of our listeners certainly to uh, to me when I was I was growing up and I heard the the announcement that we'd sequence the human genome I mean the the way it was reported to an extent I think the idea was that we'd sequenced it now and that was that all done well done everyone time to pack up and go home but um, even in the last week I've I've read new studies that are finding about new new things about the human genome and about different genes so what what's the future looking like Alex uh, will we ever reach a stage where we've just sequenced everything and and that's that's all the NGS technologies will need, or do these new technology how 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 do these new technologies turn up new findings? I think so. I think the before we can be sure that we have sequenced everything, and I'm not really sure we'll get to that because so we're answering that last point, if we consider that each individual has its own unique microbiome, its unique bacterial strains, then that means that we would need to sequence every individual on the planet to understand all the microbiome that can be, that, that exists. So I think that's probably an unrealistic goal. However, what's, what I think is realistic in the short to long term is that uh, using these newer technologies, we'd be able to get a complete bacterial genome directly from the DNA sample. So as, as I was saying, a, a big bottleneck in, the, in microbiome research is doing these reconstruction, this uh, put, put it, piecing together all these different DNA sequence fragments. But in the future, I think we'll be able to get a complete uh, bacterial genome in one go, and this will allow us to much more efficiently analyze these, these data. Another thing is also being able to use these technologies at scale, so being able to process large uh, numbers of samples and, and increase the sensitivity of these technologies to spot even low abundant species. So obviously there's a bit of bias in sequence technologies to, to sequence those species that are found most abundantly in the sample, but then those that remain at low abundance are more trickier to, to capture. Mm. So I think that those two things will be really the how we, we can improve microbiome research and, and go towards the next step is 
getting longer reads to get complete genomes out and actually increase the sensitivity to be able to, to capture those low abundant organisms. And with that data on complete genomes and low abundance species, what will the translational side of things be able to do? So it will really allow us, I think, to, to have a reference point for all these different species that exist in our microbiome. So obviously the end goal is understanding their function, understanding their mechanisms, like what are these species doing, how important they are. One might think that perhaps if they're low abundant in the gut, perhaps they're not as important, but sometimes this is a, this is a misconception. Sometimes low abundant species could also have a disproportionate role in the, in the gut microbiome community. So I think having the, the genomes of all these different species allow, allows us to understand that they exist, that they are there. So in future studies, we can have this reference point to understand, okay, let's say we have now samples from um, healthy individuals and samples from a specific disease or a specific lifestyle. We can compare uh, the DNA signatures that we detect in these samples using the references that we created. And then we can understand, okay, maybe this species seems to be more prevalent in this disease. So perhaps there's some link there that needs to be further explored. Great. Thank you, Alex. It's, uh, it's really exciting research and I'm looking forward to following it more in, in future, uh, future coverage. So a big thanks again to Alex and to Molly for joining me on today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the discussions of NGS as much as I did. Now, We'll actually be back next Friday on Usually with a special podcast on data integrity. So please keep your eyes glued to Technology Networks, not only for the new episode, but also for all our latest coverage on NGS and genomics. Bye for now.